Just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. In the culture war, there are no winners, just podcasters. Only a few are willing to risk their lives in the face of some of the dumbest ideas to have ever captured human civilization. Every week, we, Megan Dom and Sarah Hader, humbly accept this mission to bring you conversations that are equal parts shocking, mid, and morally inequivalent. Welcome to A Special Place in Hell. And uh, welcome to hell, Eliza Mondegreen. Thanks for having me. guest. Yeah. Um, we've been wanting to have you on for a while. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a privilege. Um, we have a lot to, to talk with you about. Um, Sarah, first of all, how are you doing this hellish morning? You know, I made it. I made it here. Here I am. I think that's all. Yeah, I know. It's only, all I can it's, do. It's really. merely, it's merely 10, 10, 15 AM for you. <laughs> um, um, it's, oh, I have to do this very early in the morning. I hope people, people appreciate that. You're um, in Los Angeles? I'm in Los Angeles. Sarah is on the East coast and you are in Canada, right? Yeah. I'm in Montreal. That's supposed to be the best city in the world. Why? I wouldn't go who quite said? that far. Yeah. Why is it? Yeah. <laughs> Says who? It's like, cause it's like Frenchish America. Like that's kind of what it is. Is that is that is that why it's the best? Yeah, I think the person who said that was only ever here in like June. Uh-huh. Mm. Because the winter okay. is horrifying and there is no word in French that is adequately like adequately expresses how horrifying the winters are. Um Do you speak French? I've been learning it mostly so mm. that I could describe how bad the winter is. Are you Canadian? Or... No, I'm from the US originally. Okay. Yeah, okay. I came here for so you, grad school. Did you did you move to Canada because you uh, didn't like the the politics here because of Trump or because of George W. Bush before that? No, I didn't. But I remember like my entire childhood, people threatening to move to Canada, and you and actually did it. Yeah, you did it. I actually did it, but for different reasons. And now, yeah, and now <laughs> here you are, being yeah. um, being a pariah. All right. Well, um, we want to talk with you about uh, a lot of things. Um, I'm really interested in your work around transgender identities and cultural interests, things like, like fan fiction, um, anime. Um, I know you've talked recently about this phenomenon of middle-aged women sort of leaning into trans identities alongside recovered memory. That's mm -hmm. fascinating. Um, but first you're a really prominent voice in this conversation. You, you write a substack called gender hacked. Why don't you tell us how you wandered onto this scene? Sure. Um, I This first came on my radar about 10 years ago when I was volunteering with Planned Parenthood in the city that I was living in at that time. And it was a time that a lot of abortion restrictions were being passed in my state. We could see the building where they were being passed kind of out the window of the Planned Parenthood office. And... At the same time, like the meetings that we were having as volunteers were just descending into language games. And apparently to point this out, um, the kind of immateriality of what we call people <laughs> in 
in the face of, you know, legislative changes that were going to have very material effects makes you a turf. And that wasn't something that I was familiar with at that time. Um, but that was the first time that I was ever called that. And it was the first time that I had a real brush with kind of this very interesting belief system about sex and gender. And I think from the very beginning, it just struck me as this new set of taboos on women's speech and women's bodies. And it never, I was never successfully shamed out of that initial impression. <laughs> um, but it was still several years before I looked into it. Uh, and I think, I mean, you guys have both gone down the rabbit hole the same way. And I would be curious what the kind of like last foothold that you had on the way down was. Oh, well, it's funny you say this was 10 years ago. Okay. So 10 years ago, you were volunteering or you were working at a, volunteering, at a parent, yeah. volunteering. Okay. And so were you, uh, I don't know how old you were at the time, but were you just thinking like, oh, I'm like a good feminist. Like I believe in reproductive rights. So I'm going to do this. Were you thinking you were going to have a career in kind of women's advocacy or this sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, it was like my dream to work for the Guttmacher Institute and do research for them on women's the Guttmacher Institute is a abortion what uh, explain what they do yeah I mean they do abortion and birth control and um so certainly my goals have changed some by then but the organizations have changed too mm -hmm. it's like it's, a like a think tank yeah 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 it's a think tank and instead I went into the like general public health world okay so what Which kinds of things were you seeing though at that time like 10 years ago what kinds of things were you seeing ago. I mean, 10 years ago, it was really just the push for uh, inclusive language. So it was the very beginning, I think, of, um, you know, not all people who get pregnant are women. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I remember then. And I remember I went to college at the very end of the time that I was in college, like the first um, trigger warnings and safe spaces were showing up. And I remember like the LGBT center, my best friend at the time worked there. And during our last year, it was all of a sudden full of like pillows and stuffed animals and coloring books. And it was very strange. <laughs> yeah. But it was just, yeah. I mean, 10 years of like, that, that was more than 10 years ago. Um, it was just kind of the beginnings of things where you have no idea where they're going, but it's a little like, huh. Yeah. And at that time, people were making light of it. I remember, like, I remember I was alarmed from the get go with the direction things were taking. And I was also t t told, and I, I, I've been told this every, you know, since then repeatedly that you're really making a big deal out of nothing. You know, mm -hmm. um, that if people just want to be, uh, to have these little space, safe spaces, what's it to you? Um, like personalizing something that I saw as a societal shift that was, mm -hmm. uh, really taking us in a strange and infantilizing and tyrannical at the same time direction. Um, but it would be shifted in the conversation as why am I? Like so, why am I yes. so? Worried? Yeah, right. Why, why, why are you so control? interested? Right. It, it, yeah. it, it made it about me, you know. And I never yeah. saw it about me. Um, and and that was, I, mean, I think that's one of the many many ways this conversation is such a 
it's it's so distorted, but it's also so toxic and nasty because if you speak out about it immediately, there's something wrong with you. There's something yeah. wrong with your intentions. Yeah. Um, it can be hard, I think, for women to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's this like you have this prurient interest and why do you care so much? And maybe you just don't get it and maybe you need to support it even if you don't get it. And that seems to bring some people into submission and it seems to make other people very, very, very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, and like, it sounds like Sarah, it made you very uncomfortable. It made me very uncomfortable. I had read, you know, plenty of Orwell at that point. Yeah. It made me angry, actually. It made me immediately yeah. want to, I mean, they they couldn't have done, I, I feel like, you know, I, everyone remembers, I think the first time they heard the word turf or it was applied to them, <laughs> um, yeah. which, you know, I, I remember when that happened to me as well. And it was just a simple conversation I was having, having with somebody I thought was a friend, um, or was a friend, you know, up until then, I guess. Um, and then I had some questions about, like, we were discussing some, something that had happened relating to trans issues and we got onto the topic and, uh, you know, I was like, I'm very supportive because at that time I, of course, I'm just a good mm -hmm. little liberal. I, I'm very supportive, but, but obviously they're not act like trans women are not actually like women, you know, like they're mm -hmm. not, that there's yes, a difference yeah. in the experience. And it, it came up especially because uh, it was on my mind because at that time there was um, these like private forums that I was running as a safe space for ex-Muslims and uh, safe space. Like I, I started using that terminology. I didn't even know what it meant. I thought, I thought it meant a literal <laughs> safe space because yeah. in our context, Sa you can be killed. Safe room. So, yeah. So I thought it was actually not ideological safe space. I thought it was an actual, mm -hmm. you know, we'll keep your privacy. Like we'll, you know, um, enforce these rules that make sure that other people respect your privacy. So you don't get hurt or harmed, you know, like physically, but, um, in, in any case, it, and there was a conversation I remember witnessing, I wasn't a part of, but I remember witnessing, um, between a, a, a trans woman. So like a male mm -hmm. who identifies as a woman, um, and, a, and, um, a woman, like a female, and they were talking about the oppression in Saudi Arabia and the, woman says to the trans woman like well these you know i respect that you've had like a certain kind like you've had an experience mm -hmm. but our experiences are different in the context of saudi arabia right like <laughs> and it became just a shit show like this conversation i mean insults like people were yeah. like sh literally shaking crying couldn't you know i was like wait this is an obvious, like what she's pointing out is an obvious truth. And it's in, like, what kind it's, it's that whole like sense of like, we're, I'm in some kind of like alternate reality where no, nothing yeah. is making any kind of sense. Um, and I'm just witnessing it. I'm not a part of it. I'm just witnessing it and thinking there's something wrong with this discourse that we cannot point out an obvious truth that obviously a biological man who is in the closet about his transgenderism does not have the same oppression as a biological female in an extremely patriarchal society where she can't in even, Saudi Arabia. you know, yeah, she can't even drive at, at that time. Like there were, there were all kinds of restrictions. She can't leave the country by herself. She has to have like a male guardian who grants her permission for everything for her whole life. Like she's always kind of a legal <laughs> that minor. That sounds like a, like a fetish though. That, but it was that's, that's like in the kink community. <laughs> but like there can't be a society in which this is more clear. 
You know, like it yeah. can't, there can't, there isn't a human society in which like the, 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 the separation yeah. of the sexes is so distinct, you know? Yeah. And, and yet, you know, and, and so that was my first like, huh? And it's, just, it's, it's astonishing narcissism is what it is. Incredible. Like at, at Incredible. the root of this. Everything yeah. about, you know, like, like, like the hurt that the trans person was experiencing by hearing that those experiences was, were different was yeah. supposed to supersede like the, the, the total the reality on the ground. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that was, yeah. I discussed this with my friend and he was just like an outsider, but then he like sent me this, like, I don't know, social justice, like dictionary something. And it had the word turf in it. And he sent me the definition for turf. And I was like, what's that? Like and he was like, "That's what." When was that's what you are? This, I mean, I think it was about around ten years ago. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. That's about when it kicked off. Yeah. So okay. So Eliza, did you go to graduate school? I feel I feel like I read that you were like mm-hmm. trying to find anything else to study, but yeah, they, as soon as you thought you were out, they pulled you back in. So what was it about this issue that uh, you couldn't turn away from? Yeah, so I couldn't afford to go to graduate school right after university, and I saved up for many years. And my plan was to, like, save a lot of money, move to Europe to study, and study, you know, whatever kind of I'd always really loved um, history. I was especially interested in like the period between the two world wars and um, the Nazi eugenics program, and I had all of these ideas about what I might study. And when I finally like had saved enough money and I was writing a proposal for graduate school, it was like, okay, you can do anything other than gender stuff. And then every time I went to the Library of Congress to, you know, research and write, I would be researching and writing about gender stuff. And finally I just gave up. Yeah. So um, how did you sort of start focusing on these, these kind of cultural elements, because I think like what you talk about is so fascinating and you don't, we don't hear about it as much, just sort of Mm -hmm. like the strange avenues um, through which people kind of find their way into this world. So I I don't know if you want to start with like fan fiction or anime or or what. So why don't you just take it away? So I haven't really dug deeply into fan fiction or anime, like it comes up. And I I definitely make a note of it when it comes up. But the reason that I became really interested in the online communities was that I saw that the hold they had over people in my real life, that they could make someone, you know, at that time we were in, you know, our late 20s or early 30s, and it could make somebody completely rethink everything that they had ever known about themselves and the entire way that they had ever interacted with the world. And it was like something is going on here. And I like, I have to understand what that is. And so I really wanted to take a kind of a, like an anthropological approach to um, trying to, you know, understand the local culture and the norms and the taboos. And it was just fascinating. So what would be an example of one of the online communities that you first looked at? Uh, so I never, I was never one of those people who got a hold of Tumblr. Uh, I find it just, there's this weird, slippery, timelessness about it that I just could never quite navigate. Um, so I went on Reddit, which is great for a lot of reasons for research, because you can get a good sense of, I mean, you can track people over time quite easily. You can get a good sense of how, like, 
how much a post or how much a comment adheres to community norms because it's getting upvoted and downvoted. Yeah. Uh, so I went to a bunch of online um, female to male Reddit communities and I just, at the beginning, I was just kind of reading everything because I wanted to understand how people would come to these, you know, pretty radical new self-understandings. And it's very interesting. <laughs> like, okay, because, I mean, what we hear often is, especially with the ROGD cases, like mm -hmm. this young person is just going through their life and suddenly they fall into one of these places. And is it sort of like, it, do, do you have the sense that there's almost like a, a group or a family sort of there like waiting to pull them in? I mean, I think people can get very conspiratorial mm -hmm. minded about this as if there's some like evil um, conglomerate, like it, deep inside these communities, like purposely trying to like pull people in. And it's, mm -hmm. it's not that organized, obviously, but like, how do you sort of trace the the steps? Yeah, I think that what it's tempting to think of as a conspiracy or a plan is much more like an emergent characteristic of these kinds of communities where people all have the same problem and especially where people all have the same problem and it's cognitive dissonance. <laughs> um, so you have basically the trajectory is kid goes online really almost anywhere online or kid goes to school and is prompted to consider gender in a way that they haven't been before and prompted to publicly identify themselves with the gender. And this is saying a lot of things about you when you do this. And some of those things are like, okay, well, you know, maybe I'm comfortable with kind of the, you know, sexist expectations for boys or girls, or I'm comfortably being sexualized, or I'm a boring, you know, cisgender person who doesn't have anything worthwhile to contribute to any conversation and is basically an oppressor. I mean, you can see why kids who are being prompted constantly to consider this and to publicly identify themselves would say, well, that doesn't really, like that kind of chafes, like that really doesn't fit. And then they're questioning. And as soon as they're questioning, they're told that the fact that they're questioning makes them transgender because cisgender people don't question their gender, even when they're mm -hmm. constantly prompted and even though when it's really loaded and even though nothing's defined. Um, and then they have doubts. And they're told that the doubts also make them transgender because why would you doubt yourself unless you were really trans? Mm -hmm. So it's the way that I really think about these communities is it's like stepping in quicksand. Yeah. As soon yeah. as you have a foot in it, it's too late. Yeah. So how do you, um, I mean, because I've, I've seen the, the mechanics that you're like that process that you're describing, I've mm -hmm. seen it also when I've been poking around these communities from the same kind of like fascination of what is mm -hmm. going on. And it is, uh, it, you know, watching it, seeing it happen again and again, like there'll just be some young person who'll say this happened, or sometimes I do this, you know, and normal girls don't do that or normal boys don't do that. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and so I relate more to my sisters than to my, to my brother or whatever and they are yeah prompted to to think about things from the lens of gender you know mm -hmm. and to put on the gender glasses and then suddenly you know here's this thing that now explains all your problems <laughs> or many of your mm -hmm. problems you know like many of your problems it explains and then and then on top of that it gives you this identity and also a path to mm -hmm. 
fix your life and make everything so much better. So that I feels like there, there's a package, you know, it's, it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's the identity, like the sense of like fulfillment and, and uh, significance that it can provide you. And then on top of that, um, also a plan of action, you know, um, yeah, totally. kind of a politics to, to look at the world. So it's, it's so tempting. And I'm not surprised at all that many, many young people fall into it or find it very interesting. And I think a lot of Megan and I have talked about this multiple times, like where would we, we have been necessarily like if, mm-hmm. if these were the politics of our era, like if these were, if this was how young people were prompted to see themselves, how would we have seen ourselves? And I, you know, like to think of myself as somebody who would have just shaken it off as bullshit. But it seems that if, you know, the more you are surrounded by everybody who thinks that way, it is yeah. human. It is, it's not even irrational. It is actually rational to, right. to then there's something wrong that, with you if you don't fall into it, right. maybe. That, there's, <laughs> there's an absolute, there's a, there's a reason behind why we think that if we're the only person who thinks something that we might be the crazy ones, like that's not an irrational conclusion at all. Um, it, and it's interesting that that's, you know, the position that anybody's put in that who's, who's thinking, you know, I don't know about this. Like, I don't know if this explains it to me. Yeah. So how would like, how would a young person like shake it off? Do you think like, are there off ramps to this, mm-hmm. you know, to, to this whirlpool? Like at what point do you, do you, do you come out of it? Or I don't even think it necessarily needs to be a young person. Although of course, young people are more vulnerable to this, but how does anyone come out of it? Yeah. So that's one of the things I've studied too. It's kind of like what causes people to, or what do people say pushes them towards detransition and assistance. And I've noticed a couple of different like pathways out. And one of them is you run into, you know, medical complications. Um, and that can often be, you know, it puts the brakes on the medical transition and then the social part kind of falls apart over time. Mm-hmm. Another one, much bigger, is that people will say they just, they ran up against the limits of what transition had to offer, and it wasn't Mm -hmm. enough. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're going to particularly see this with this, you know, rapid onset gender dysphoria cohort, where in the past, clinicians really used to screen, like, I have a lot of critiques of um, gender medicine from the very inception, all the way along. But in theory, clinicians used to screen for unreasonable expectations that patients brought to transition, and now they don't. And so you have a lot of kids who have absolutely impossible expectations. The idea, like just the idea that you would ever change sex or the idea that you could ever control the way that people saw you. Like you can't do these things. You are not going to get these things out of transition. And when you run into that, some people double down and some people double down for a long time and some people will double down for a while and then they'll get out and they'll say mm-hmm. like if i could really be a boy that would be very appealing i really hate being you know they'll still talk about how the appeal of transition is so strong but what's available isn't enough it's not good enough so i i want to pause there actually Mm-hmm. You say that in the past, clinicians would screen for unreasonable expectations. How far in the past are we talking about? Who were those clinicians? Were mm-hmm. they counselors um, as well as medical doctors, surgeons, that kind of thing? And 
what what really happens now? Because again, I, I don't think we can emphasize this enough because people say there's no way that these clinicians aren't at least telling th- these these cl- patients what to some degree what's mm-hmm. going to happen. Like they just can't believe it. Yeah. So basic. So I'm not sure exactly when this like really tapered off. There are some clinicians who insist that they still do this. I kind of have my doubts because when you ask these clinicians what they do to assess patients and to kind of warn them about the limits, everything gets very fuzzy. Um, but, but basically, I think, you know, in the, in the 1970s, for example, you have patients, mostly male, going to gender clinics. Um, they're mostly older. And they are fairly brutally assessed for their ability to pass convincingly upon transition. And the ones who are not going to pass or the ones who are not going to be able to live with not being able to pass are screened out. You mean the doctor would say literally like you are a six foot five dude, you're not, this is not going to work for you. I'm not going to take you on as opposed to like this other person is a, has a slight build and is going to be able to pull this off. But is this kind of like the doctor doesn't want to, it's kind of bad for business. Like they want to take people who is going to be successful. It would be a good advertisement for the uh, clinic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea is that they're looking for the ability, the desire and the ability to assimilate. And obviously the idea of what it means to be trans has changed a lot since then. But yeah, I think part of it is like, okay, yeah, you want somebody who's going to be a good advertisement for your clinic and like, wow, I can't believe it's not butter or whatever. Yeah. Um, I don't mean to sound cynical, but I mean, I, yeah, but I mean, also obviously they just want to be um, realistic with people, but it is actually, Mm -hmm. they think of it, it is striking because it is so rare now that you hear in any context, someone say, well, actually this is just not going to work for you. Like you are never going to be this person. Like now the, 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 the onus is on society to make the person feel welcomed, yeah. you know, and, and not on the clinician to even screen for it. You know, it's not for, it's not a, it's not something that the clinician is necessarily doing for the sake of the, for the person, but the clinician might be advocating for trans acceptance on a kind of a broader level. Um, and that's yeah. kind of an indirect way to do a, the same thing. Yeah, so there's always been this kind of, I mean, what's always been part of gender medicine is trying to prescribe other people's behavior. So when we have like those early male transsexuals and their clinicians are literally like writing them a letter in case they get stopped in a women's bathroom to say like, no, like my doctor said I could be here. Like those Mm -hmm. clinicians were also prescribing other people's behavior. They were also Mm -hmm. enlisting, you know, the community Mm -hmm. in this therapeutic exercise. But yeah, that's totally metastasized. So like we have to remake society so that um, you know, six foot five inch bloke with a five o'clock shadow or just a beard, you know, so that he feels really comfortable dominating women's yeah. sports, whatever he wants to do. Okay. Well, speak, speaking of that, um, Sarah and I talked, uh, recently about the case of Artemis Langford. Yeah. Um, and I know you wrote a piece in, in, was it unheard? Um, about, it was just for uh, my Substack. You wrote a piece on your Substack. Yes. And we should say, um, yeah, we should say you you write for a number of publications, uh, including Unheard, but you wrote for your Substack about this case of the student at the University of Wyoming who is a biological male who decided um, to that uh, mm-hmm. he, she, they wanted to be in a sorority. Um, what did you make of that? 
I mean, it, the, the trite answer is it seems like the dream of many college age men, but in this case, (laughs) in this case, it seems like there's something sadder about it as there often is like that. It's just a messier story than, okay. Of course he wants to see girls on sorority girls on dress and whatever. Like that does seem to have been part of it. It's part of the lawsuit that he was getting aroused by these things. But when you read his story, I mean, you just, you see somebody who just is basically not going to fit in no matter what. And they have been written basically the cruelest prescription for how to not fit in, which mm-hmm. is to try to do, force other people to accept them as a woman, as a member of a sorority, you know, those right. really notoriously loving and gentle <laughs> societies where there's no... Yeah, I was going to say, if you want to be... Um, he's, he's getting the full uh, girl experience of being excluded by other girls. So right. well, can, well, welcome to the club. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And this is something that I struggle with, with, with AGPs in particular, um, uh, because on the one hand, I think of them as separate from the rest of the trans population, just broadly, of course, like we're making, like, I'm, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but it, it is the case that that's so many other of the, of, of the other, like, um, typologies, I guess, um, of, mm-hmm. uh, or types of, of, um, transgenderism, um, or what might prompt it feels like they're running away from something, um, uh, into something that is far more fulfilling, but with AGPs, it's it's more like they're chasing something. Um, it's like a it's like a running to um, and kind of almost surrendering to this desire. Um, and you know, on the sh- in the short run, I'm sure it's wonderful. Like I'm sure, like it's great to have mm-hmm. society you know play along with something that you find so um, you know alluring primarily sexually, but maybe in other ways as well. Um, and it must, you know, th- that must be wonderful. And especially if you were an awkward guy, if you were this guy who, uh, Langford, what, what was the name? Artemis. Artemis. Artemis, um, Artemis uh, uh, you, you, you know, you, I can imagine this is a person who never fit in, you know, in a lot yeah. of places, was always awkward, was always like a weird guy, even even a creepy guy. You know, you might like it's the kind of person you might even like attach that label to. And I'm sure that's like a that's a difficult that's a burden to bear. And there's not an easy way out for especially mm-hmm. in like more modern society where where young men are more isolated now than they've ever been before. They don't have uh, the kinds of society like in societal institutions and and sort of pathways to becoming yeah. you know a man or just like not a weirdo really you know and maybe just it feels as if that those kinds of institutions which we saw as cruel you know like um look when i when i look back at them it's like okay that was cruel that i'm glad we don't live in those times and now i think all right but now we have a bunch of you know, grown people who are kind of lost and they haven't been properly socialized and they act kind of like weirdos and they upset other people. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that that's kind of a little bit of the AGP story too. And I, and I definitely feel like some of the younger AGPs buy into the idea that they are, they also buy into the idea that they are actually women in some, um, in some significant way. And I think that that 
those of them that, who are very sensitive to the way other people feel and don't want to make women uncomfortable, this helps them, this helps ease their conscience a oh, little yeah. bit when they're pressing into women's spaces. So I, I yeah, I, I find, it, at first I didn't find the AGP case very fascinating, but now I'm I'm increasingly finding it more interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. The best way that I ever heard autogonophilia described was that it functions like an addiction and... Mm -hmm. So it escalates over time. You need more yeah. and more of whatever it is that you're addicted to. And that a lot of the rage that we see from these men is when, you know, you have an addict and you interrupt their fix, you interrupt mm -hmm. their supply. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, it's also interesting to see like the intellectualization of it. And I, I think we had, last time we covered this, it, this, um, uh, we, we covered um, AGP on one, on an episode. We got lots of comments, like lengthy okay. comments from from AGPs, like self self described AGPs. Um, and I I always find them interesting and you know thoughtful and very like deeply articulated in a way that you know the 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 other stuff. They're really highly intelligent people. High, yeah, a lot clearly, of them. Yeah, cl mm -hmm. clearly in a way that, you know, the, the girls who are becoming trans men, they kind of are like not extremely articulate. I feel like, um, in how they're describing what's happening to them oh, or, or, in, or I, I think intellectualizing and like the, the way that they're creating a framework that supports what they're doing or how they're identifying. I feel like that's, that's not something I see as frequently among the trans men. Well, would you say that that's true? I, so I need to think about it, but I can kind of see that. I think the thing that's so interesting about like the young female communities and even like Megan mentioned, like the older um, FTM communities is that there's this tremendous focus on what they are not. So they're not women. And no matter mm -hmm. how much doubt they mm -hmm. have about their trans identity, no matter how uncomfortable right. they feel, you know, maybe being seen or not seen as a man and whether they want to be seen that way or having some mixed feelings about that. The main thing that they have is this rejection of being female. And so these entire communities are built on the, like, it's all female experience, wall to wall, mm -hmm. which I find very mm. interesting. Like when I went to, um, when I went to the World Professional Association for Transgender Health Conference, which was here in Montreal last fall, uh, one of the things that was interesting about it was I've been to a lot of, you know, public health and medical and academic conferences over the years. I've never been to a conference where, like, a person's sex was particularly salient, you know, all the time mm -hmm. in every interaction. Mm -hmm. And at, there's something about, you know, the trans conference and so many people who are you know, trying to put on the appearance of the opposite sex that makes sex salient all the time and that you notice it all the time. Like somebody who cuts in front of you, you wouldn't normally think like, oh, that's a man, that's a woman. And when there's this attempt to falsify it, it's like, it makes it foremost in, I think, the mind of the observer and in the mind of the person who's trying to pass. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that's true. I think it's the same with these communities where, you know, they're built on the rejection of, being female. And so there is this total obsession with every aspect of femaleness and this total fixation on every, you know, manifestation of, you know, the, like the shape of your skull, like, is it masculine enough? And the way that like different, like the curvature of your arm, 
the kinds of like absolutely like just obsessive fixations that you would only find in like the most just like eating disorder community or something i was gonna say it sounds a lot like the anorexic pro anna stuff it is yeah yeah it is that community yeah it is it is that community yeah do you think that this is like a new version of anorexia i mean this is this is a very reductive way of putting it but you hear it all the time like anorexia Mm -hmm. became cutting and then cutting became this and obviously they still all exist as comorbidities i think that there's a lot to that um it's like that whatever the idiom of distress is it will change over time and people who are experiencing distress are going to subconsciously search for a presentation like a set of symptoms and a presentation that other people will take seriously Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so a classic hysteric would not make sense in 2023 Mm-hmm. If you're having, you know, no, because like everybody's real... hysterical, just so that no, you can't right. separate yourself from anybody <laughs> but else. But if you were going into those real, like, you know, the fits that Charcot's photographers caught and stuff yeah. like that, like people would think that you were crazy, but not in a way where they would understand that you needed like this particular kind of like help or whatever. <laughs> um, so I definitely think that trans is soaking up some of the girls who would have been anorexics when I was a teenager. Um, but there's also, like like you said, a lot of overlap between trans and anorexia and cutting in the same patients right now. Like those mm-hmm. other symptoms haven't quite passed out of, you know, the symptom pool that people are drawing on. Right. Yeah. Well, it's almost like it's adding. Uh, I mean, it's they're sort of yeah, stacking adding. up is what it sounds like. Um, I yeah. want to go back to the AGP thing for a mm-hmm. minute. So, you know, because Sarah and I were talking about this Artemis Langford case and we were referring to him as AGP. And I think we should be clear that it was never mentioned in that um, <laughs> incredibly baffling and credulous Washington Post story. AGP did not come up, obviously, because mm-hmm. I'm sure that the Washington Post doesn't even recognize AGP as a category. Um, and nor did it come up in any of the uh, court documents, I guess, Mm-mm. you know, in, by name. So just to be clear, we are uh, imposing that label uh, on this person, but it seems pretty obvious. I mean, the, in addition to, you know, getting erections around these women, I mean, sitting Undeniable. there having conversations about their breast size and their cup size and just wanting to. What do vaginas them. look like? Yes. By the know, way, I'm so, yeah. So clearly this was um, an AGP case. But what I want to ask you, Eliza, is historically the mm-hmm. AGP presentation has um, kind of gone along with cross-dressing and the typology of middle-aged men who are not gay they're heterosexual Mm -hmm. um coming out in midlife and transitioning um and it's this sort of being like a next step to their to their cross-dressing almost like this is on the bucket list like you know i've been a cross-dresser for this you know all these years and i'm not getting any younger so now i'm going to transition i mean obviously that's not everybody but that is a subset but it does seem like we're seeing agp now more with younger people Mm -hmm. like and and there's a lot of talk about whether that comes from pornography um so i wonder what you um think about that so this isn't something that i've researched a whole lot i mean most of my focus has been on women and girls Okay. My, Sorry. We're talking a lot about men today. No, so that's okay. We'll, we'll that's okay. I just, I want to say like, yeah, I don't, so I don't know. Um, but my, my hunch is that porn has a lot to do with it. And that I think 
My guess is that there are maybe more men than we would have previously thought who get turned on by, you know, autogynephilia, the idea of the love of oneself as a woman, the idea of oneself as a woman. And when this was really socially unacceptable, most of those men just maybe got over it and didn't feed it. Mm. And now they are being celebrated for chasing the dragon, whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Or it was like a private thing. I mean, I don't think common, but I actually think it has increased just because it's um, human sexuality is extremely like, uh, you know, we're very plastic and it it changes over time in the sense that if you are rewarding a certain like fantasy with orgasm over and over again, like then then that, you know, those connections will be made in your brain and they will strengthen over time. And, yeah. you know, it, there, there was no, there was no like latex fetish before the invention of latex, right? Like, then it, then it, Wait, then what's we had latex. latex. Fetish? Oh, there's, that... oh, Megan. Um, I'm so out of you it. Don't, you don't want to know. You don't want to know. Well, I think you do want to know, but we'll, we'll talk about it afterwards. Oh, the, okay. Yeah, that will, well, maybe we'll have the, a the, special the, bonus paying, super, NC super paying subscribers. Yeah. We'll talk <laughs> <Okay>. latex, <laughs> okay. latex fetish videos. Um, uh, but you know, like it, you see it at, 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 at an early age, it, you know, and in a sexualized way, and there's a connection that, that is formed and you reinforce that connection accidentally often, you know, it just gets reinforced either, you know, either passively or actively. And then, and then it becomes a full-blown fetish. And then it becomes something that you can't break out of because now you've reinforced it a little too deeply and you can't get aroused in any other way. And I, yeah. I, I find it kind of frustrating when people deny this aspect of sexuality, that there is, you know, a sense of fluidity. There's there's this idea among like lots of like men, I, my male friends will say this, like actually porn doesn't create fetishes. It allows you to like, like I'm discovering myself. Really. Yeah. And I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> like you're like, you're not yeah. discovering yourself. I mean, maybe aspects of your personality can be, can, can, you know, uh, shape where you might be initially attracted, like initially attracted. If you're somebody who's a very dominant guy or a very submissive guy, whatever, like that's kind of the, 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 the hole you, you, you first fall into, but yeah. with, with like porn addicted people, you see that there's a lot, they hop from, you know, fetish to fetish even like, they'll just like, they'll go almost everywhere because that old thing just doesn't do it. Now they need something new. And yeah, you, you Which know, is I mean, the addiction kind of like treadmill. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's there, there's definitely something about just the exposure itself that's increasing the incidence of yeah. AGP, and especially in very young men. And that's really sad because they, a lot of them, are, you know, they don't have sexual experience outside of this, and they don't know how to, you know, be a be a man in a relationship with a woman because so many of them are, you know, so many of young men yeah. are virgins anyway for a very long time. Um, so it's a it's a it's kind of an extremely like it's a tragic thing you know that to to, to see it happen and kind of take off in this way but you you say you Mm -hmm. you focus a lot on young girls which is why Mm -hmm. this is like the online community element is so important um what would you say is um because I, I I think about it a lot as like somebody who who used to like build communities like support communities in Mm -hmm. real life and in and on the online spaces and I noticed that there was such a 
divide between the two that <laughs> online communities really just pose their own challenges and we relate to each other in such a bizarre way online um that it is it, it is they, they are not like a one-to-one they are not just like real like normal <laughs> like real life communities but held in a different space that's not what it is so um like I, I, i'm curious as to your thoughts on that like do you agree to do you agree with that or what you know what do you think about how we're changing our social landscape as we move to more online communities in general, like not just in these specific cases, but I mean, what are we doing right now to some degree? Yeah, I think, I think we're seeing what happens when people are able to have the experience of like living outside their bodies for extended periods of time and to socially interact with others that way. And it wouldn't surprise me if that's something that like really does kind of remap the brain body connection in some way that makes people makes actually existing in the physical world more like dissonant or distressing. I, Mm -hmm. I really have to think that that's part of it. Um, But also, I mean, when I'm, when I'm looking at these, like the online female communities, they have a reputation for being tremendously supportive. Of course, they're also tremendously traditional. <laughs> um, but the thing is like, okay, well, what does support mean in that kind of a context where you can't sit down and look somebody in the eyes or give them a hug or, you know, know them in the real world at all and you only know what they're presenting to you. And part of that is, part of what people are talking about when they say these communities are so supportive is that you can go there with any kind of problem that you're having any kind of like grievance no matter how small it is and people will listen to you and they'll validate you but one of the problems with that is that you're also exposed to everybody else's deepest darkest three o'clock in the morning thoughts Mm. and that these seed new sources of these kids will call it dysphoria but let's say distress and obsessive Mm -hmm. fixation Mm -hmm. and then you'll engage in this co-rumination and so I think one of the dynamics that I notice with like these online FTM communities, and I'm curious, like kind of how it applies to other online communities is the extent to which I think that they are actively distressing because they yeah. are constantly, you know, it's, it's, it's like drip feeding you new things to be neurotic about, frankly, yeah. and new people who reinforce that the rest of the world will never, ever understand you. Mm-hmm. the way that the online community does and that you'll never ever belong anywhere else the way that you belong in the online community it yeah i was reading this book from um the 60s the doomsday cult by john laughlin which is about the early years of the moonies and he talks about the recruitment technique that they use which is that they would you know kind of like take young people off campus and they would go away for a weekend together and they would have this like love bombing experience where everybody was so nice and you know everything you did was so great and it's so special that you're here and then they would dump them quite intentionally back in the real world where all of a sudden everything would like chafe and itch and hurt Mm -hmm. and you would Mm -hmm. realize how you know people in the real world just aren't loving and don't get you that way and they don't appreciate you like that And it drives you back into that manipulative group. And I think that that's a huge part of what online communities can serve in terms of like how they might sever people from other sources of support and other ways of thinking about problems. 
Yeah. 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 That's so fascinating. And do you find that there are like people at the top, are there ringleaders in this group or does this group dynamic just kind of naturally manifest as this collective love bomb? I mean, I really think that this is something that I've been thinking about a lot is how do you have these kinds of cult-like dynamics without a leader? And I do think that they're an emergent property of these online communities because what are some of the things that a leader provides? Like, okay, a leader can be a source of like charismatic authority. A leader also supplies the rules, which are inevitably arbitrary. And the, you know, the ideology that flows from the leader in a traditional cult. And it will, you know, be constantly like self-revising and you'll never know quite what you can say. And it'll always have you on your toes. And you can get those exact same um that kind of arbitrariness and that kind of like dynamic evolution of ideology as a naturally emergent property of these online communities without a leader. Mm-hmm. A lot of these functions, a lot of the functions that a leader would serve just emerge. Yeah. And I think so. So I don't see many, um, I don't see many leaders and I don't really see the need for them in the same way because you have the same you know, these people who are seeking answers and the the kind of self-policing and the walking on eggshells and all of these things that come so naturally out of an insecure group that all has the same problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you find that there is no, I mean, I once read a really fascinating um essay um from from a feminist uh activist like kind of an organizer from like from like the second wave and this is like some super old essay and she was talking about um the fact like how how kind of nefarious the lack of hierarchies in feminist spaces can be um because she says that the fact that it doesn't have an explicit hierarchy does not mean that it does not have a hierarchy. Um, but instead the kind of hierarchy it has is much more, f- um, like, uh, social and, um, like obviously implicit, but, 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 uh, ruled by, um, you know, uh, these, these drives of these particular individuals mm-hmm. that are kind of under, under the cover and therefore you can't hold them accountable. You know, so when these, when these, mm-hmm softer hierarchies exercise power and they might just be like the most popular cliques in the group like the most uh favorite f- favorite people whatever like the uh and i think we all know that this is the case like especially in like women's spaces like forget about activist spaces yeah, but is like this, you is know this lady tr- friends your group of lady friends they're, oh yeah the queen bee like there's yeah. somebody who's you know um more powerful than everybody else more sociable more charming whatever and she exercises mm-hmm. the kind of power that nobody else does but because it's not explicit she can't be held accountable for to what she does you know when it harms mm-hmm. the group um or when it just benefits yeah, her no, it's oh, all right like bat signals i mean that's the sort of women's was this the essay trashing are you talking about that famous essay trashing about the second wave uh and it was came out yeah, of the second wave. it yeah. was yeah oh yeah no this yeah. is um i wrote about this in my book i think it was um i don't know if this person was named um 
Joe Freeman, I think, is uh, one of the women associated with that. Oh, yeah. No, it was it was one of the first. Yeah, she was a second waiver. And Joe Freeman, Mm -hmm. Joe Freeman trashing the dark side of sisterhood. Yeah, Um, this was she was one of the first in the second wave to really just say out loud, like these these circles are toxic. mm -hmm. They didn't use that word back then. But um, you know, you, this, this kind of guise of sisterhood being all, um, you know, kumbaya. And if, if women, if women ruled the world, there would be no war kind of thing. Uh, she was saying that's a, a bunch of, uh, she talks about yes. how there's no, you know, like the fact that there's no structure does not mean that there isn't like force and coercion. And in fact, yes. it might be more. And that's, and that's yes. if, oh, it's totally more, but you can't, it's slippery, right? Like mm-hmm. you can't mm-hmm. get a handle on it. Um, I mean, and this comes up too with the detransitioners, right, Eliza, because there's nothing worse than an apostate. So people get into these communities, they are love bombed, they, you know, they, uh, it's, you get this euphoria, right? So trans joy, trans euphoria, and I want you to talk about that a little bit too. But I mean, you can imagine then, to be a detransitioner must just take extraordinary courage, because the amount, I mean, first of all, you've been rejected by your real life community, and then you go into this w- world, and then to have them reject you on top of it, it's amazing anybody goes through with it at all. Yeah. And I think, I mean, so often it is a response to just, like, people do hit this point where they seem to just say, like, I just can't do it anymore. And the costs don't matter where they matter but they don't they're not enough to deter someone at a certain point mm-hmm. um do you think that the detransition communities are now sort of growing and strengthening enough to counteract some of that i don't know it's, i can't remember who i was talking to someone said the way that we've seen a kind of a social contagion around transition it's possible that we'll see a social contagion around detransition is that becomes, <laughs> but that would suggest you know, that the transition is not sincere, then it's just a social contagion. I mean, I don't think that sincerity is the right way to judge a social contagion. Yeah. Because I think you can be it's sincerely felt. Okay. It can be sincerely felt and like socially influenced at the same time. Right. But I mean, a social contagion w- would suggest that. This you mean emanating from themselves authentic experience like right so but it, that's you're now yeah, yeah. But, but that's so yeah. many you know so so few of our experiences actually do emanate purely from like our inner like deeper, deeper uh, yeah, inner, for yourself I'm um, totally <laughs> authentic everything i think is yeah yeah um yeah. but yeah i i think that that uh it, it's interesting the way that like alienation plays into it, like the the f- alienation from the physical world, because I see it as, you know, the, the, the way that we think, the way that we, um, uh, you know, move about the world, uh, the choices we make are influenced, yes, by s- the social world and also by the pull of, you know, material reality um, mm-hmm. like that, that that itself as, you know, Hannah Rand said said this and I thought it was like one of those things like when i read it i was like oh right of course like when she said that that um you know reality like fact it, 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 truth is is a is coercive like in its nature mm-hmm. like that's what it is because you can't argue with it you can't 
you can't do anything about it. We, you must like submit, you must just accept that that's what it is. And, mm-hmm. you know, so, so if we think about ourselves as beings, we're being pulled in several different directions, sometimes by social factors, sometimes by, uh, uh, you know, whatever our, our internal desires might be absent anything else and tendencies might be absent anything else. And then also what material reality, the, the, the influence of material reality I think it's interesting um, that you see this kind of phenomena take place when our bodies are have become kind of irrelevant um, to who we are, and the kind of feedback <laughs> that our body mm-hmm. provides. You know, I mean, it, it's interesting when, when, people, when people say "touch grass." That's what they're saying. They're saying, yeah. you know, you're you're too you're 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 actually trapped. You're actually over socialized. Like that's what that's what the internet is doing. It's producing mm-hmm. a kind of over socialization, and you need really the coercion of of reality to bring to to mm-hmm. trap take you out of it. You know. Um, and that's what touching grass can do, you know, going, going fishing. And it's interesting that a lot of like, I, I hear also this from like parents who read about this, really, I don't hear it. Um, but um, from parents who are trying to... That would require going out. That would require grass. touching grass. That would going to a picnic um, <laughs> and talking with other parents on the but, grass. But, but parents who are of, of, of children, of young girls often who are, you know, who are, are wrapped up in this gender stuff, they will just mm-hmm. like go hiking with them more often you know like take them camping like have like very physical experiences like of them interact you know Mm -hmm. using their hands and become you know yeah you hear them still like they take them away for a vacation for two weeks without their phones like on a backpacking trip or something and like the kid is better not lo and behold they're cured but no um, they're better because their connection with their bodies Mm -hmm. is you know is is something that becomes relevant again you know their bodies become relevant again and i think that that circumstance giving your child that circumstance um, and allowing them to, to experience themselves as a body, as much as, you know, as this social being, Mm -hmm. this mind is an important thing to be able to do. And it's interesting that none of us are doing it. You know, it's not just like, I'm not falling into the gender stuff, but I might be falling into a lot of other crazy rabbit holes because I'm, I'm too over-socialized. No, No, no. not us. Of course. Not us. Not us. Never. Um, Yeah. And that was another thing that often seemed to be part of people detransitioning was like, they would meet someone who, you know, with whom they want to share their body and who appreciates their body and who reconnects them with their body. Like this isn't, this isn't a coincidence. Right. Um, Eliza, you've talked about this concept of competitive credulity Mm -hmm. and I love this. Mm -hmm. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah. So competitive credulity, this is something Louise Perry and I talked about Um, with reference to recovered memory and also with gender-affirming care. And it's basically a dynamic that I see taking hold in psychiatry and psychotherapy at different stages um, in which you see kind of a diagnosis become an identity and then that becomes a social movement. And so the therapist moves from, you know, serving the patient in front of them to serving this greater cause. Mm -hmm. And the way to do this in the case of, you know, recovered memory and satanic panic and gender affirming care is that the, the kind of the therapist develops or demonstrates greater faith in the cause by being willing to follow patients wherever they lead. And so if a patient comes to you and says, oh, well, I have some kind of dissociative episodes where I don't really feel like, you know, I 
just feel like I'm not all there. Um, that's something that just about any therapist can believe. Like we know that dissociation is a human experience. If a patient comes in and says, I have 16 personalities of all ages and genders and races, that's something that you, like, if you believe that you are showing that you are really committed to this cause. <sighs> when it comes to gender affirming care, it's, it's very easy to like see a teenage girl come in and say like, oh, I'm really uncomfortable with, you know, going through puberty and I'm really, you know, really don't feel at home in my body right now. And I'm not sure what to do about it. Anybody can believe that. If a girl comes in and says she's really a boy and she needs to, you know, bring her body kind of into compliance with that identity regime, it does take something special on the part of the therapist to be able to overlook everything else that's going on in that patient's life. Like that's how you demonstrate that you are committed to the cause because you are willing to see through whatever thicket of comorbidities and see the trans alter like standing there, which is I think what we're seeing when somebody like, I mean, Diane Aronsoft who has experience with multiple psychiatric contagions, including the satanic panic and now yeah, explain gender. who she is. Oh gosh. Um, she's a, I think she's a clinical psychologist in San Francisco. Um, she was a big proponent of some of the wilder excesses of the satanic panic and recovered memory movements. And now she has moved on to gender and says that kids can be like gender Priuses and gender minotaurs. And she's a real, really, yeah, she's a real kook. A Prius? You mean like the <gasps> car? Car? Like, like because they're hybrid boy girls. Ah. Oh. Okay. She's really into like. She likes metaphors. <laughs> yeah. Euphemism, like. And she's at UCSF or Stanford. You know what? It's so she's, weird because I, I, she's either at UCSF or USF. I can't remember. Okay, because um, I actually contacted when I first started uh, my podcast, The Unspeakable. She was mm -hmm. somebody that I got in touch with um, to potentially do a, an interview, and she actually did write back to me um, in a fairly normal way. Uh, mm -hmm. And then it, our correspondence fell off. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So when she, wow. like she was at the trans health summit in San Francisco a few months ago and was talking about what do you do if you have a, you know, a severely autistic nonverbal patient adolescent and you need to get consent for hormones or surgeries or something like that. And she's arguing that like these patients could draw their consent if they can't speak. She is demonstrating incredible faith, or I would call it credulity of being willing to look past, you know, severely autistic nonverbal barrier to see their like true transgender self. How would a nonverbal kid be expressing a transgender identity? Is it the parent that's doing it? That was something that I really wish that she had talked about because it's very hard to see how that kid's kid ends up in a gender clinic. I mean, we talk about kids who you know, kind of have features of autism and they can be very uncomfortable with gendered expectations or with, you know, like frilly itchy clothing or all, you know, is like, is it gender? I mean, I feel like gender is like, like what? Like, is that what autistic kids are worried about? Like, I mean, like, like high functioning Asperger's, yes, but like by the time you get to the nonverbal, I mean, these are people mm -hmm. who can't, no, they can't, the parents yeah i don't, I don't I, know i'm sorry these are munchausen's by proxy parents making these interpretations yeah I'm sorry yeah it's, it's very hard like. to resist that conclusion yeah 
that's wow appalling it's appalling i i just but it's like mind-blowing so okay so so the the competitive credulity thing really has to do with uh sort of trend within the clinical community of Mm -hmm. buying into a magical thinking that they have reframed as a diagnostic approach Mm -hmm. um is that something that you are seeing um Ex- almost exclusively with women or more so with women clinicians, because I I've um, also become lately interested in like how much of this is being like perpetuated by women mm-hmm. versus male. I mean, obviously there's not as many male therapists, but there's something yeah. very strange happening with that. I mean, it's hard. Yeah. Like you say, it's hard to say because the pr- profession is pretty slanted toward females. And so the overrepresentation would be kind of a normal feature of that. But I don't know. I think, I mean, it does play on a really a kind of a, like a pathological empathy. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And, and yeah. we, the culture, I was just talking about this with another guest and like on my other mm-hmm. show and like the, the culture has become the, the women set the moral tone for the culture and women are agreeable and have more empathy. And so all these characteristics have been mapped on to society more broadly. And there isn't a kind of, you know, whatever, stereotypically male sort of mm-hmm. rationalist energy to counteract it. Or if that does try to come in to counteract it, it's tamped down pretty quickly in the name mm-hmm. of justice or inclusivity or whatever. Um, and I think that's a huge part of what what's happening with this movement. Yeah, kind of at every stage. I mean, what Sarah and I were talking about of just the kind of changing social expectations and that you would be, you're supposed to acknowledge and then defer to like, you're hurting this guy's feelings by reminding him that Saudi Arabia is, you know, a pretty sex-segregated society. There is just this prescription that like you're okay you're supposed to be kind and you're supposed to not hurt people's feelings by bringing up inconvenient things that they don't want to be reminded of and that this world of inconvenient things they don't want to be reminded of keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger right and it, it, it isn't that kind of uh going against the entire point of therapy which is to confront difficult truths and like find a way to cope yeah. with like reality yeah. as it is I found something very interesting the other day that I haven't had a chance to look into yet, but it was like trans affirmative CBT. And it was like, Whoa, that's not okay. CBT. Okay. <laughs> like we will protect your biggest cognitive distortion while attacking the others. Right. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so how has this been for your life? Like mm-hmm. you've, are you, um, have you had professional or, or personal consequences uh, for talking out, speaking out? Um, some. I always anticipate that there might be more coming. Uh, I would say I have lost a couple of friends and that there's always something really surreal about it because there's a point that you cross over from being thought of as, you know, a good person who maybe has some problematic or you're just kind of out of step but you have good intentions and then at a certain point you cross over and all of a sudden you're this like hateful bigot and you really meant all of the terrible things that you said plus all of these things that you never said and don't actually think but must believe Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right as part of this effort to you know recast you as this hateful 
bigot. So I've definitely gone through that cycle with a few friends. And one of them, like very interestingly, um, this was someone who shared the same job as me at our public health nonprofit. And we, you know, worked side by side for years. We talked all of the time. And at a certain point, she realized that I actually really meant it when I didn't think that like trans women were women, that I wasn't, that when I was asking like, but what does that mean? Like I meant that it doesn't mean anything to me. Um, And she, I mean, she dropped out of my life. And when I reached out to her to just say like, can we just try to understand each other? Like we've been friends for seven or eight years. Um, She, she wrote back that, well, she would be willing to work with me in a process of accountability for my um, beliefs, beliefs that were leading to the death, deaths of trans people, that every time that I contacted her and it wasn't about my being accountable, she was going to donate $500 to a trans kid charity in my name. Wow, she, she independently wealthy? She, she has family money. <laughs> Yeah. That's hefty donation. So it's not quite as it's not quite as impressive uh, <laughs> in terms of personal sacrifice. But wow. it's an interesting like psychological statement, right? Because what is she doing? Uh, is she trying to She's holding you hostage. I mean, that's a that's right. a like a blackmail situation. I mean, that's it's like it's kind of like there's holding wow. me hostage so that I won't tell her things, but it's so I won't tell her things that she doesn't want to hear. Right. And it's She's like a way herself. of managing the contagion that I have exposed her to. Mm-hmm. Or the contamination wow. that I have exposed you to. Wow, I'm cleansing it. Yeah, Clean- that's yeah. Right. But like, right. talk about a desperate. I mean, if that is a white knuckle, that is a death grip on a set of fictions. Oh yeah, of a pretty to a pretty extraordinary degree. Right, it's like literally sinking costs into the thing that you're being warned about. It's impressive in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's I mean, the weirdest. <laughs> That's really weird. I mean, we should we should let that's you go. That's incredible. I, I love it. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's so. It's a good um, idea for signifies a, a lot of. You, I mean, right. It clarifies yeah. what's happening in in a really interesting way. Um, yeah. I know. Yeah. I'm gonna use that for something. Like the next time Sarah makes me use a management tool, I knew that um, I knew I'm going to donate $500 to the pro-Palestinian uh, cause of my choice. There Why we go. Why would I not be okay with that? I might be okay with that. Um, <laughs> I might be okay with that. Uh, So we should let you go pretty soon. But um, I mean, speaking of sunk costs, one of the things we talk about a lot around here and I think about constantly is, you know, the fact that we are going to have big cohorts of people walking around who have transitioned, Mm -hmm. who have made, you know, irreversible physical transitions, parents who have facilitated these transitions in their kid. Um, and there's no going back. So they're going to have to live with their decision. I mean, Helen Joyce mm-hmm. has talked about this as well. Um, and I've certainly been thinking about this for, for several years because I see this in several people that I know, some of whom I know, you know, closely, frankly. And I feel like it, it is a coping mechanism. And in some ways, their only choice because you would literally go insane if you admitted yeah. to yourself that you made this mistake. And I completely understand why you would do anything to to keep up to just convince yourself that you that you did the right thing so um i don't know what my question is exactly but but do you think that like on some level we're just we're going to have to live with this because so many other people are living with it mm-hmm. i don't think that it's going away anytime soon 
even if I feel occasionally hopeful that, you know, lawsuits or public awareness will shut down some of the bigger abuses, especially regarding like child medical transition. But like, I don't think that there will be a reckoning. I think that there has been way too much buy-in, both elite and like incredibly personal, like you're talking about with parents, where people will never want to look at what they actually supported. And I think that we see the beginnings of like attempts to manage that problem when we see, for example, like the wild expansion of what gender affirming care means um, to include things like, you know, women dying their roots and all kinds of like uncontroversial <laughs> things that they would put it under the heading of gender affirming care. And to me, this really looks like people who are kind of preparing to say, like right now it lets them defend things that are really controversial and say like, well, that's just gender affirming care. So don't talk about the thing where we're like sterilizing kids. Like that's just uncomfortable. And in the future, let's say things don't go so well for that side of, you know, the right side of history. Um, it will let people say, well, I always supported gender affirming care. And it always meant the totally uncontroversial thing that it means now, which is telling kids that it's yeah. okay to play with trucks or Barbies. Right. That's what I'm So I've they're seen. just going to, they're going to just memory hold this. Well, I think they're going to keep redefining language, which was how we got into this mess. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I don't think there's going to be a reckoning. There's nothing like it, of too course many not. people have like gone there's on. never, but, but there's, you know, when, when it comes to like this kind of thing, that's so big. Yeah. Um, as you said, there's been so much buy-in like there's, there's, it's never going to happen. Um, yeah. But do you uh, think this is going to blow over like in 50 years? Are we going to be, will we have moved on and just be, be look back like, Oh, that was a strange time. I really don't know because it's obviously a tremendously compelling idiom of distress. I think it'll be hard to, you know, oust it from our kind of vocabulary of suffering to say you're born in the wrong body. Yeah, it just, it speaks to people on a really deep level. And I also think that the ties between kind of transgender identity and embodiment goals and like all of the frontiers that that opens up in medicine makes it very unlikely that it'll go away just because that is such a lucrative area of like whether you're doing it for gender reasons or whatever other reason like the idea of aligning your body with your true self through extensive like medical operation like that's not going away mm -hmm. yeah wow all right we'll Sarah do you have any other questions for Eliza I mean I do but we are actually running out of time that's we have to wrap it up, sadly. But this is fascinating. Um, I think yeah. that I mean everyone should check out Eliza's Substack, um, which the address is what. I, yeah, well, I, tell I, us I, where we can find uh, you. How, yeah, what do you sure. want people to know? Um, everything ends up on elizamondegreen.substack.com. So okay. yeah, everything wherever I write it. Okay. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love reading your work and uh, listening to you. You really really um, so much. insightful and um thank you for all you're doing and thinking about and i really love a special place in hell so it's been nice to visit <laughs> anytime yeah thank you're welcome you. anytime yeah. this is uh you know your your kind of place we'll love bomb okay. you in hell every time that you okay come here so that sounds sounds good <laughs> okay thanks all right thanks eliza thanks <laughs>